Okay, so today's guest, guys and gals, he uh, not only changed making records forever, but he changed the way we think about what a record actually is. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Trevor Horn. Thank you. With you, it's hard to be conventional, but I'm going to be conventional and start with you explaining to the guys and gals here how you actually started your career. You mean how I became a record producer? Well, yeah, that kind of thing. Just the beginning thing, because you started, uh, we were just talking about you being uh, starting as a bass player, too, in the studios and stuff. Yeah, I used to. Um, my dad uh, my, my dad was an engineer, but he played double bass five nights a week in a dance band for money. And I, I, I was never the, ever particularly interested in music because I, I, the way they used to teach it to us, they used to teach it like a crotchet was a penny and a quaver was a, a half penny. It was incredibly tedious and I, I never paid much attention to it. And then they got us, uh, when I was about nine, I got a re you know, they, they gave us all recorders, you know, like nice. recorders. Yeah, yeah, lovely. And um, I remember taking it away with the music and coming back after a weekend and that was the first time that I that I actually had any idea that I might like music because I, I seemed to be able to play it quicker than the other kids in the class and so they used to have me at prayers playing the recorder playing the hymns on the recorder nice. uh, and then and then when I was about sort of 12, 11 my dad gave me one one lesson on the double bass he showed me how to play way down upon the Swanee River boom 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 way down oh, it was a very old song yeah uh, and then from when I was about 12 I, I used to debt for him you know if he couldn't do the first set I used to get up and play I'd worked out how to read for the double bass from the recorder because you know from reading for the recorder I worked out the notes on the bass and uh, it was useful for my dad because sometimes he couldn't make the first set so sure. So I'd play, and it was all that old dance band music, like Glenn Miller stuff. Yeah. And um, I suppose that led on to, I did all kinds of things. Then I was a, a Bob Dylan impersonator when I was oh, 15. Nice. Didn't know that. Now I used to play all the folk clubs, but I used to play the bass for money because very few people could read music for the for the mm. bass guitar mm. back in the mid 60s. And even though I was only sort of 16, I could I could I could read. So I, I did a lot of semi-pro work. And then I was, when I was about 18, I realized that probably like a lot of you have, that uh, you're only ever going to really get on in something, you know, something that you're really interested in. So I woke my parents up at four o'clock in the morning and said, I'm going into the music business, I'm going to be a professional musician. And my dad, my mother wept, and my, <laughs> and my dad said, you're not good enough, son. You've got to practice if you're going to be a professional musician. And uh, funny enough, the day after I got sacked from my last day job, which is a progress chaser in a plastic bag factory, the local leader of the of the only pro band actually in the city that I lived in of Leicester came and knocked on my door and offered me the job. Um, and it was all really at the time because I could play a song called Everlasting Love. Do you remember Everlasting I Love? I do very well. Yes. It it was the first. your eyes. That was it. It was the first um, pop record that had a really challenging bass part on it. And if you were an old double bass player, you really couldn't play it because you had to play. Hearts gone astray. That you know, and you had to play that all. It was like almost like a sequenced bass part. But I could play it, and the guy in his band, the guy in this pro band, was an ex-double bass player, and he couldn't. And I suppose that led me on in the end. In the end, I came to London, and I played in various crap bands in London, like people like Ray McVeigh, Bob Miller, all the dreadful ones. But, the, you know, good money. But when I was about 24, I did some sessions at BBC and Made of Earl, and I was just fascinated by the studio, and, and you know, no, back then, you were playing with, you know, a 30-piece big band, and every time they recorded it, you know, they put the red light on. Mm. So it was kind of tense, and I was, the, I was always the youngest. I was only t 23 or 24 when I was doing those sessions. I remember once making a mistake in the middle of a big band sort of number and, and stopping everything, waving my hand and stopping everything. And uh, I said, sorry, I made a mistake. And the guy, in the, the guy that ran the horn section was a guy called Derek Healy. Do you remember Derek Healy? Yeah, yeah. And he looked over at me and he said, you made a mistake? He said, you don't make mistakes, we make mistakes. <laughs> I said, oh, sorry. 
And uh, he was dead right, because all I'm doing is plonk, 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 you know what I mean? And those guys are really blasted. Yeah. Because, of course, these big band sessions went straight to quarter-inch tape. That's they right, didn't. Yeah. They, they didn't go to two-inch tape. Yeah. So when the red light was on, you really were, were sweaty. So I did, that, I did that for a while, and I think that... That got me, uh, when I was about 25, I had a studio, I, I went back to Leicester and I built a recording studio with another, see how long-winded it is, how to become a record producer. I built this studio with another guy whilst I was working seven nights a week in the local nightclub, this time I would be about 25 years old. When we finished building the studio, we had to literally build it with our own bare hands. And this is, I'm talking about 1975. We had a, a couple of Revoxes. Revoxes back then were the big deal. You know, remember Revoxes? I do, very well. Because you could bounce between them. You know, you could, uh, th they were sort of master quality. And, and uh, there was no business for this studio. So I started, I started we, we put an ad in the paper advertising to people, we'll fix your songs up. And... And so, I, you know, people would come in with, with uh, a terrible song and I'd sort it out and make a, make a sort of record of it. Uh, in other words, produce it. But, but I, the funny thing was I didn't know at the time until somebody said to me, you know what you're doing is called being a record producer. And it was like a, a sort of one of those things. I go, wow, wow, is that what being a record producer is? I had no idea. Uh, well, that's obviously what I'm going to do because that's what I like doing the most. And, but then it took me sort of five years to get my first hit because it's not easy. It's very, there's so many pitfalls to making a record that, you know, I probably walked into all of them in those five years, you know. And, and the first hit would have been? The first real hit I had was Video Called the Radio <coughs> right, Star. Exactly. So, we, so, you know, I went from Nout to Loads, if yeah, you know what I mean. Because yeah. I never really sold any records and Video Killed the Radio Star sold yeah. about nine or ten million singles and was number one everywhere. So it was That's a bit of a shit, yeah. Um, all the elements of, I mean, what is perceived as the Trevor Horn sound are pretty much in that record. Now, was that something, were the elements of those sounds, I mean, for instance, those emotional pads, the orchestral stabs, the bass drum that's like a mallet in your forehead, all those kinds of sounds that are trademark your sounds, they were there from the start. So were these things that in those five years of fooling around in your studio and, and fixing up people's songs, you had said, I like that sound, or did you, was it something that you imagined, I'd like it to sound like that, and you figured out a way to get to that? Well, the video killed the radio star, the actual record is all played, none of it's programmed, because programming didn't exist. No, but the sound, and, but the sound of it, but, yeah, but, was very different from any record but, that it Well, one of the reasons, yeah, one of the reasons the sound was so different was because we were trying to make it sound perfect. You know, in the absence of, of, of having anything that might be regarded as feel, um, then precision, you know, <laughs> was the order of the day. Yeah. And you're talking about 1978, 79, the people who were the really good players were like the guys that played on Elton John records. I, I always thought Elton John's records sound fan sounded terrific, and I tried to emulate them, but I could never get them to sound right. Uh, I could never get my records to sound right. And it took those sort of five years and after about sort of four years of, 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 of trying to sound like everybody else I sort of gave up and I figured well they sound a bit weird but I'll try and push them to the extreme of that mm. strangeness and a lot of those things that you talk about as being sort of trademarks were there in the first place the other we nicked them from other people I mean the romantic string pads were there partly because romantic string pads had only just arrived we had a polymoog uh -huh. and it, we had one of the first ones that came into the country and the first time believe me I mean it's difficult to appreciate now but before the polymoog you know you, you, you had a mini moog that did one note at a time and there was a guy called Gino Vanelli who tracked them up in the 70s. And then there was a Selena string machine, but there was nothing that made that pad sound. And the first time we ever got a polymoog, the first time my partner played those, played some chords in minor seventh or minor ninth chords on it, it was a revelation, you know. Mm. It sounded absolutely fantastic. We used to, we didn't used to call it the pad back then, we used to call it the carpet. <laughs> Let's put the carpet down, that's what we used to say. And the carpet was playing all of the chords all the way through on a polymoog. And, you know, those, you're right, those gags, the Video Killed the Radio Star was gagged up from one to the other. Because the thing is, I couldn't count and, you know, I didn't have a following. I wasn't, you know, I, I knew that if, if we were going to make a record that stood a chance of being a hit, it would have to be, it would have to come out of the box like a, like a greyhound, you know? Mm -hmm. So it had to, every square inch of it had to be terrific. Yeah. It's the thing of you only get one chance to make a first impression, so let's kill them. 
Well, yeah, and, and, and I knew I knew that that song was the song, and you know, and we and the, the thing is, one of the reasons I knew it was the song was because we'd done such a great demo of it. We did a demo of it in two days that came out, you know, magic. It was magical, uh, but unfortunately, the demo belonged to somebody, so we we had to redo it. Belonged to somebody in what sense? They paid for it. Oh, nice. They paid for the demo, and they wanted us to sign a contract, and I wouldn't sign it. So we had to start from scratch again. Mm. And when you've had some, you know, real magic, especially the keyboards, when we were, when we were making, the, making the demo, when it hit the sort of bit where it goes, they took the credit for your second symphony, symphony and all the keyboards start dancing around. Mm. That moment when we were making the demo was one of those moments where I thought, Jesus, this might be the first hit record I got, because that sounds fantastic. Mm. You know, when you get something really good, I mean, we spend days in the studio sometimes, and you just get mediocre stuff, and then some days you just, wow, it just goes through the roof, you know, and you mm. think, shit, if I like that, people are going to love that. Mm. Uh, so, 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 you know, I knew it had magic, but then when we went back, to, when we tried to recreate it, we practically made the record from the ground upwards and then scrapped it because we'd been sloppy, and we'd ignored a few things that were great on the demo and you know I learned that lesson then that's quite easy to go and do something quite spontaneously you know two days and it all comes out great to go back and redo it can be quite hard and, and you have to be so careful to keep every little thing that was good on the demo so you know when Island Records said how are you getting on you know we've given you 10 grand you're meant to do three tracks yeah. and we said well actually we're going to need some more money because we've, we've only done one and we've just scrapped it and, and we're going to start again and they said why did you scrap it and I remember at the time I said because we thought that the version that we had might get to like number 35 and we wanted to do a version that would get to number one and it sounded, it sounded really good, and they bought it, so yeah. they gave us some more money. Yeah, so you have to have a good line of patter if yeah. you are going to be a producer. Producing and recording previously was a process of capturing reality. You know, you captured people's performances, you got the greatest performances you could, you recorded them as well as you could. Yeah. But your records, I might describe as capturing hyper-reality. Do what do you think of that? Well, reality is a bit boring most of the time, isn't it? I mean, it's quite mediocre reality, unless you're a genius, and I'm not a genius, so, or unless you've got fantastic musicians, um, reality is pretty, is, is just means mediocrity. But I mean, was that your idea from the start to, to capture, to kind of create this? My idea from the start was to, was to beat everybody else and make better records than them, and anything that I could think of or any edge that I could find that would help me get my record noticed above other people's records was very important to me. And I just happened to come along at a time in 79 when the technology was just exploding. So I was just completely into it. I mean, but, but you know, I started off doing that thing of capturing reality with a bunch of guys. And, you know, possibly the reality of the, of the backing track for something like Video Killed the Radio Star initially was put down with piano, bass, and drums. who played it for hours, mm. you know, to get it to get it perfect. So there's a certain reality in that. But no, no, I take your point. I was always comparing records over here to American records. And American musicians always sounded so much better to me than English players. And so I was always looking for ways to try and make English players sound better. Mm. But I mean, you say you captured the reality of the rhythm track, but the sound of the instruments was not real. I mean, the thing like the kick drum being so violent and the and the sound of the actual piano, even though it was played in real time, is kind of yeah. in intense. Yeah, but the, funny enough, the, the kick drum on Video Killed Radio, so the reason it comes in like that was the engineer came up with that one. He said to me, look what happens if you, if you play the track from the top, you leave the drums where they are, uh, where they're going to be when the rest of the track comes in, but you pull the piano back just a little bit, look, listen to what happens. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and so the piano starts off and it does its bit, and then suddenly, boof, the, the kick drum comes in really loud. Yeah. I said, it's fantastic. Yeah. We'll keep that for a start, you yeah. know? So it was the engineer that thought of that. A lot of the good ideas on records come from the team of people that you're working with. Yeah. It's very important to, to make sure that the people you work with feel really comfortable and happy and relaxed and feel free to suggest anything or do anything without... You know, I always try and have a really good atmosphere when I'm making a record. Mm. So everyone's going to enjoy themselves, and that way you get all the best ideas from people like that idea. That mm. was the engineer's idea. Yeah, when, when I uh, 
speaking of your team, I mean, uh, when I spoke to Ann Dudley, she said that she thought your best quality in the studio was your ability to capture the moment, that if anybody did anything good, you'd leap on it and say, that's good, keep it, do that again, or we'll use that as a streamline, or, you know, yeah. that you let people fool around a bit, and then from that you chose bits and pieces. Yeah, I mean, it's a, making records, I still think, is a collaborative art. You know, you can't make a film on your own. One of the things I always used to do as well, I always used to get the best musicians in that I could possibly lay my hands on. And then I, you know, I, then I wouldn't tell them what to play. I'd just play the track to them, you know, and say, what do you think? Got any ideas? How about a bit of whatever? And if you, if you use really good people, they'll, they'll come up with really good stuff, especially if you've got two or three of them together in a room. It's like giving people a, you know, a problem. What, what can we do with this? What can we do with this corny old chord sequence to make it sound different? You know. Yeah. It's one of the problems is you keep getting the same stuff to the same old turkey to baste. You know. Right. Right. Well, I mean, it's like I remember when we did Slave to the Rhythm. I said to you, uh, "Well, what do you want here?" And you just the, your two words that you said was impress me, which well, of course so was like a red that. rag to a bull. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so that made me want to do something equally excessive. <laughs> to do that. Yeah. See, yeah, Slave to the Rhythm. The fun part of Slave to the Rhythm, I always thought was that end bit. Ba -da -ba -ba -da -da -ba -ba the, the horn section huh. that you wrote. Yeah. That was great. I remember jumping up and down when we heard that. <laughs> we were so pleased well, with it. It was meant to be a kind of a. Because you had that Here's Gracie, so I did a kind of a pastiche of the Johnny Carson show. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. So, do you want to talk maybe, since we're talking about collaborators, some of your other. Uh, collaborators and the things that you thought that they contributed to, to the records. I mean, an obvious choice to talk about would be maybe Steve Lipson. Yeah, it's funny, I read an interview with Steve Lipson, in case you, any of you don't know who Steve Lipson is, he's this sort of the guy that I met when I was working on the Frankie stuff, and he played all of the guitars, you know, he was like, the, he was fantasy Nasher out of Frankie Goes to Hollywood. He played all those parts. I read an interview with him where he was talking about coming to work for me and he said that he wasn't sure about me and so he decided to come but he decided that he wasn't going to do he was going to do exactly what he wanted to do and ignore me <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and that when he showed up he got a real surprise because that's exactly what I wanted him to do <laughs> just get on with it you know and don't bother me now Steve Lipson's great he's one of those sort of guys he's a great guitar player he's a really good engineer He's an eccentric guy because he's, uh, he's not everybody's cup of tea because he's a bit... Uh, give, you, give you an idea of what Steve Lips is actually like, right? I was talking to the... A few years ago, I was at the Grammys and there was a guy called... Is it Jeff Goldberg that used to run Warners? And uh, I knew Jeff Goldberg. And Steve was there. He was playing with Annie Lennox. And uh, Jeff Goldberg came up to me and said... God, that's Steve Lipson over there. Will you introduce me to him? I'm such a fan. So I said, sure. I know, yeah. So I took him out. I said, Steve, this is Jeff Goldberg. Jeff Goldberg said, I'm such a fan. I love your records. And Steve said, he loves my records. <laughs> and walked off. Typical. And, uh, and Jeff Goldberg said, did I say something wrong? And I said, oh, no, he's a fruitcake. Don't worry. He's always like that. Right? And Steve's kind of like that. He's rude. Uh, very direct. In mm. fact, I was just working with him yesterday, and he's dead bossy, kind of takes over, you know? Yeah. But he's funny, and, and he's a brilliant guy. A really good musician, great, great engineer. I mean, he's, he's produced some great records. I think those Annie Lennox records were terrific. And, I, and even though I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not Will Young's greatest fan, I, I thought there was some great records, and you know, that to think I better leave right now, or whatever. Mm. It was great. So that's Steve Lipson. I guess he worked for me for five years. We worked together. You know, five years in a control room together is a long time. Especially with him. Especially with no, I, no, funny enough, he and I never had a problem in the control room, except we would always have the same argument. His, his basic point in life was that we were all doomed, and I always had a slightly more optimistic point of view, and we would just argue it every day, basically. Either that was sex, one or two. I see, right. Well, we were talking about that. But yes, let's move away from Marvin, the depressed android. And uh, let's talk about somebody who's rather charming and sunny, uh, Miss Ann Dudley. Yeah, I first met Ann Dudley. I was, uh, I was doing a terrible gig down in Wimbledon Tiffany's five nights a week in a band called Cold Water Morning. 
It was uh, a keyboards, bass, drums, and two singers, and it was one of those sort of gigs that you do an automatic pilot. You know, you get 50 quid a week and you show up and you play the cavalcade of crap, as I used to call it. And uh, and one Friday night, this blonde girl turned up doing a dep on the keyboards. And uh, not only was she a girl, I mean, it was a bit of a rarity seeing girls. I mean, we are talking about probably 1976. But she was she was really good too. I mean, like really good, not just okay. She was really good, and it sort of brought the band to life. I kind of woke up and, and I actually enjoyed playing. And uh, and after after the first set, I, I kind of went up to her and said, "You're really good. Um, you know, do you ever play sessions?" And she said, "Yeah, I, I do play school sometimes." <laughs> oh really? I said, "Well, I'm going to be a record producer, and one day you can do some." sessions for me and she kind of went oh yeah she, she, she told me afterwards she thought I was trying to come on to her or something but uh, I, I kept her in the, I kept her in the back of my mind and the minute my uh, partner in the Buggles split and joined Asia I, I, I gave her a go I thought she might be worth a try and the first session I did with her I'll never forget she came in and the, the song was in E minor and it had one of those E minor to C kind of chord sequences and she said to me uh What's the intro? And I said, there's no intro. Play something. She said, play what? I said, play something. It's in E minor. Play something. She played something. She said, great, that's the intro. Her hands were shaking. And she wrote it out. So that became the intro. And that was the great... And that was the first thing I noticed about Anne that was really great about it. If we were trying something out and she played something, I'd go, I like that. She'd stop and she'd write it down. So I would always get, it's like a machine. I mean, this is the 80s and we were all a lot younger and apt to, uh, you know, prone to excessive behaviour occasionally. You know, we used to do stupid stuff, putting false moustaches on and wandering around and seek hiling and stuff like that, you know, doing the funky Third Reich, uh, whatever. And Anne always used to take, Anne always used to be like a sort of school teacher. She'd get cross with us and tell us off and we'd have to go and be professional again. But she's an amazing keyboard player. I had a really great sensibility with uh, how to um, how to make strings really work, and very good uh, as well with young. You know, occasionally when you're working with young artists, every artist who's never had strings on their record, they always want the strings to sound like either "I Am the Walrus" yes. uh, or no, "Strawberry Fields Forever," right? No, and they always want it ten times more complicated than it's meant to be. <coughs> And you try and tell them, look, this isn't going to work. You know, all that shit that you, you know, violins playing that stuff, they don't sound right. And you have to try, the great thing about Anne is you write an arrangement and the artist can kind of moan it and she won't budge an inch, basically. And she's right, you know. Once you, I mean, you know, you know the same thing. You know, string arrangements have generally got to be simple. You're lucky if you can get a, a really good bit of something in there, but most of the time it, it's got to be kept simple. Well, I've tried my best. Oh, no, you've managed to squeeze a few things in there. Yeah, I squeezed. Yeah. The role of the producer. In a way, the producer it, during the 80s was, was perceived as being, if not uh, more important than, but certainly as important than the artist. And that kind of, I mean, may, maybe that's something you say, oh, shucks, you know. But that actually was primarily, I think, because of you. Yes, but it wasn't something that I sort of courted or tried because I had never actually did any interviews in the early 80s. And my, and my wife always used to have this policy. She used to say, she used to say if you don't talk, people, people can speculate that you're stupid, but if you talk, then they'll know you are. <laughs> so, so I never did any interviews and, you know, you kind of build up a bit of mystery I think this idea that the producer's more, you know, at various points in time has been more important than the artist is more to do with the music business than the outside world. Because, you know, arguably one of the most successful things I ever had was Frankie Goes to Hollywood. But I remember when they did market research on it, that they told me with a great glee, do you know how many people know who you are? And, and I said, not as many as one would think, I imagine. All right? And I was dead right. Only about 10% of the people that bought the record knew who I was. And that's the way it should be because, you know, you're selling the, the artist selling the record, not the producer. And I think at the beginning of the 80s, there was a bit of a point where because the technology was changing so quickly that if you weren't in there, you didn't have a clue what was going on. I mean, 
a lot of people used to come up to me and, and they'd, they'd ask me, how did you do whatever? And I realized that they didn't have a clue because they didn't understand sampling. When, you know, at the beginning of the 80s, um, the only sampler was a thing called a Fairlight, and it cost £18,000. And there were eight of them in England, and I had one of them. All of the other seven were, were in the hands of, uh, of people who were either using them for themselves. They, the people weren't record producers that were using them. The Fairlight was the first sampler. And it only had, I think it had eight seconds of, uh, of sample time, but it could only be utilized in half-second bursts. It was a very difficult instrument to use. Very few people could afford eighteen grand for a start. I mean, I mean, I could because I had a big hit. And, but I mean, even then, my wife gave me real grief. Eighteen thousand pounds? What does it do? Does it make the effing record? And I said, No, no, darling, it doesn't. It, uh, but it's it's digital mellotron. And you say that to people, well, what's a digital mellotron, you know? I mean, what's a mellotron for a start? But <laughs> a digital mellotron. But the difference it made to the sound of everything was really quite something, you know? And then, then, then you know, the page R came out. And page R was the first sequencer that would trigger samples. And, uh, and relax, we made relax because a guy bought out a piece of kit that linked... The sequence of page on a Fairlight, this is real nerdy stuff, to a Lynn drum machine. It was called the Conductor. You probably don't remember. I mean, I could fill a museum with the stuff I've got from the 80s. But it meant that I could lock a piano, a sample of a piano going gung, 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 with a Lynn kick drum going boom, 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 and a, a bass guitar, which was also sampled, playing E, just four in the bar, ging, ging, ging. And the sound of those two things together, when you first heard it in 1983, was like, wow, that sounds fantastic, you know? I mean, now it's, you do it, anybody can do it really easy. Back then, you know, there was probably only one other person that had that equipment in the world. So it was a great moment. And then, then by the end of the 80s, everybody caught up, really. And sampling was no... You see, the thing is, sampling was fun back then because, because the, the Fairlight used to do this funny thing where it, where it took all the top frequencies and all the bottom frequencies off the sample, and it sort of romanticised the sound, a little bit like black and white tossed to a picture. The minute sampling became full bandwidth, it was tedious. It just sounded like a recording back then. And so, so, so I guess the answer was I was in a position where I was so far ahead of everybody for a couple of years that I got a bit of a kind of a, a reputation. But in some ways that reputation can also put lots of people off, you know. The reason I didn't, you know, Chris Blackwell wanted me to produce U2 and I would, maybe I should have done, I would have made a fortune. But they were terrified that, uh, U2 were terrified that I would get rid of the bass player because he wasn't a very good bass player at the start, and I got rid of the bass player in ABC and put a professional guy in. And uh, that's why I never got to produce you too. So sometimes having that kind of reputation can be a complete pain in the ass. Mm. But uh, at the same time, uh, for instance, what you're talking about with the development of technology at that period and your propensity to want to use it, mm -hmm. uh, that created something special. Maybe you, even though you say a lot of people eventually got the technology, they used it in a different way. I've always thought you used technology in the service of, mu of the music, in the service of the, of the emotion and the atmosphere and the lyric and all that good stuff. Mm. But a lot of people seem to concentrate a lot on the technology as an end in itself, and, and I don't think you ever did that, but it's kind of like the technology for you was an instrument. In other words, just like an instrument, like yeah. a fork as an instrument to eat a piece of, you know, something. Well, the recording studio as a musical instrument became a musical instrument really in the 80s. In the 70s, it was still a recording studio because you had to play everything, but then suddenly in the 80s, it started to change. And just, just you know, you could the, the studio literally became an instrument. But, but I remember when I was starting out, when we were working on Video Kill the Radio Star, going to Mickey Most's studio. Now, Mickey Most was a record producer in the 70s who was a really good producer. He produced all the hot chocolate records, you know, uh, Believe in Miracles, all that stuff. And he also, you know, Jeff Beck, Hio, Silver Lining, Herman's Hermits. And, uh, of course, 
in 79, I, you know, I hadn't had a hit and I was totally in awe of him and going to his studio. And I asked the engineer, you know, what's it like working with Mickey? What's he, what's he like? What does he do? Because, you know, you do, I, you know I, I never had any lessons in record production. I had to work it all out. Uh, and you, you kind of learn by trial and error. And the engineer said to me, oh, Mickey's not interested in the backing track. He spends all his time on the lead vocal. Hmm. I thought, that's weird, because of course I was young, I spent all my time on that backing track, you know, uh, the backing track was going to be fantastic. But now I realise he's dead right, now, I'm, I'm just the same now, I spend 85% of the time on the guy's lead vocal, because it's so important, that's the guy that's paying you, or the girl that's paying you, you know, that's the money. And uh, the backing track can go hang, especially if it gets in the way of the, the lead vocal. Mm. Nothing that, nothing that uh, in any way would get in the way of the lead vocal would ever find its way onto a backing track. The lead vocal is the most important thing. And, and you can always get more, more out of the record by putting more time into the vocal. Better the vocal is. I mean, if you're listening to somebody you really sing well, you can give a damn about the backing track. You know? So I think that's something that I uh, learned. Would you say that in recent years, or as, as time has gone on, even though there are still technological advances, they've s slowed down at this point so that actually that side of making records is not as important anymore. And the other thing is, if everybody's got the same gear, they tend to yeah. sound alike. And I mean, like, you, you would hire, for instance, Andy Richards to do one thing, and you'd hire Richard Cottle to do another thing, like, yeah. the, like the sequence on the SEAL record. Yeah. You know? You'd hire them for the particular sounds they could make. Yeah, well, I, I never wanted to be limited by what I could play or program in the records that I made. I mean, if, if every record I made depended on me to play everything on it, I wouldn't have made half the records I made. One of the problems I find a lot these days is that, is that you're right, every, it, it's like when you hear young bands, you hear loads of stuff that you've heard before because everybody who's been playing the guitar for two or three years, nearly everybody ends up playing the same stuff. You know, you can do this, you can do that, and it's pretty boring. Um, what was the start of that? Well, point? I was talking about the fact that, that everybody's got the same technology yeah, everybody, now, yeah, and so yeah. records are tending to sound the same. I, I've sort of gone back to, you know, not that I, I got really bored with the whole programming thing. I still like to start off with a bunch of guys, you know, playing, mm. uh, even if even if it's just to get ideas, you know, and, and then you can always you can sort of redo it. Technology's great these days. You, we, I mean, we did something yesterday. It took us days in the 80s. You know, we made up a drum track from, from two be beats of a drummer playing across, you know, recorded across ten tracks, looped, you know, and slotting the fills in. And, and even though he didn't play to a click, we could still click it and... And, 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 you know, where the fills didn't quite fit, we could stretch them a bit. Uh, and we literally did something in, in three hours that took three days mm. back in the 80s. So technology is fantastic. You can, you can fix anything up these days, just about. But, uh, I don't know, I still think a record's got to happen. Somebody's got to play something, a bunch of people together do something, and then you you build on that. If it just starts as a program in a computer, or if that's all it is, you know, keyboard players play, I mean, there's nothing more irritating than me hearing keyboard players programming drums. They haven't got a clue half the time. They overdo it, you know. Then, you know, you sequence the guitar. It's all so mediocre. You know, if you get some good players, you get some interesting ideas. Especially, I, I also find that people who write songs, I mean, I mean, I hate songwriters because nine times out of ten they don't finish the song. What they, they give you, they give you a stump of something, you know, it's got a couple of verses and a chorus and, and a terrible middle eight in the wrong key and no ending, no beginning and you have to sort it all out, you know, as a producer and you don't get any, you know, I don't charge them publishing for, for, for sorting out an arrangement but that's kind of what, you know, what we're up against programmed by somebody on the keyboard who, you know, might have half an idea but, you know I'm always looking for somebody who does does those things better. And I suppose in about sort of 20, I've been doing it for 30 years, and I've found about three keyboard players that I like. You know, I've got one of them over from America at the moment, a guy called Jamie Mahobrak. 
and he's played, if you look at him, look at his CV, he's played on everything from Metallica to the Rolling Stones. Uh, he's only a youngish guy, 38, 39, but he's unique because he has a whole different take on playing and programming since, you know. He doesn't quantize them. He plays everything by hand. And it has a certain eccentricity to it that I really like. This idea of sitting on your own in a room and making a, a record, that, that doesn't appeal to me, it never has. I think it's, you need people, otherwise the record will be limited. Uh, Phil Spector said no amount of production can make a bad song into a hit. Would you agree with that? I think I've probably pulled it off once. Once or twice. Well, I'd love to know which ones you... I thought Owner of Lonely Art was a bad song, uh, and we rewrote it. Um, uh, yeah, once or twice, I think, um, if I cast my mind back. But only only back in the sort of golden era where you could gag the thing up so much that people might ignore the song. Yeah, but I mean, and then, even then, you said you, re you rewrote it, so... Yeah, yeah, it, it is very difficult. It's the same thing with the film. It's very hard to make a good film from a bad script. Right. It's, you know, the, you know when you make a record, the script's the song. I honestly don't think that... Uh, the song I did with uh, Faith Hill, Everywhere I Go, There You'll Be, the one for Pearl Harbor, was a very good song. But I think we made it into something good just by the weight of the arrangement. Mm. And it had a big movie behind it. Well, yeah. well let's, it, let, now that you've mentioned a word that is dear to my heart, let, let's hear about uh, your thoughts about arranging. I mean, I think you said something once that one of your best talents is arranging sounds in an interesting way. Can you talk a little bit about the, the role of the arranger and, and the role of you as a record maker to make sure that the arrangement is right? I remember before, before I'd had a hit, I was working on a record called Hollywood, and I was trying to mix it in a place called uh, Utopia in uh, Primrose Hill. I couldn't get it to sound very good. It sounded awful. And... There was a cutting room there, you know, that, this is the days when people used to cut records onto vinyl. There was a cutting room, and the guy that was in the cutting room was a guy called Ian Cooper, who still cuts records. And this record that I was working on, Hollywood, I remember taking it into him and playing it to him and saying, I can't get this to sound right, can you, can you give me any help? And he, he cued it a bit, you know, he put a bit of top end on it, he said, yeah, it's a bit waffly at the bottom. But I realized that he couldn't really do much with it. And in my back pocket, I had a tape of the demo of Video Killed the Radio Star. And I said, have a listen to this, see what you think of this. And played it. And he said, oh, this is much better. Oh, this sounds much better. And, you know, it sounds really good. And I said, why does that sound better than this? You know, I was asking a cutting engineer. I, I wanted to know. And, he, of course, he pointed out the obvious. He said, well, the arrangement's better. I said, what do you mean the arrangement? He said, well, what you're playing is better. You know, look, the drum, you know, there's space in it. The bass part's interesting. It all fits together really well. And it sounds better, you know. And I know that might sound very simplistic, but I thought there's such a difference between, between the sound, you know. He was talking about maybe putting some top end on this other record, but what was really wrong with it was everything. Everything was wrong with it. What everybody was playing was wrong. You know, when you go to make a backing track uh, for somebody's record, you know, and you, un unless it's a very unusual record, you're probably stuck with the same old stuff, you know? I mean, if it's in E, it might go E, C-sharp, minor, A, you know what I mean? Or some, you know, whatever. You're stuck with those same old chords and you've got to do something with them to make them sound more interesting or find an angle and if you if you can just, you know you, you work away at something and then suddenly it'll spring to life I can't explain it it's almost like two and two making six suddenly you put these two or three things together if they're the right thing and suddenly it, it just sounds different it doesn't sound mediocre anymore and that's the most <coughs> That, that sonically, when I talk about arranging, I mean, there's other kinds of arranging, like arranging for strings, and I suppose, I mean, I could write a string arrangement out, but it would take ages. I'm not very, you know, I'm not very fluent in it, and it wouldn't be right, you know, because I don't know how to put all the marks in for the strings. It really is a specialised thing. But, you know, what the bass and the drums and the keyboards play is so important. And you'll find 
that some people seem to have an innate understanding or have learned what to play on a record and what not to play on a record. And it, the only way that you can do that is by playing on a lot of records and watching how it works. Because the whole thing is the whole thing about a record is it's got to be as simple as it can possibly be. If there's anything flowery going on, you can bet your ass it's wrong, you know, and you've got to get rid of it. It's all got to be simple, to the point, nothing that doesn't need to be there, and everybody playing the right thing. It takes a while to get there, though, you know, and sometimes I have to sort of spend days with days of mediocrity trying to find some way of doing the same cheesy old chords in a different way, you know what I mean? Because... You know, I'm I'm stuck with them. I mean, I think my least favorite chord change is like G major to F sharp minor seventh. You know, I've never liked those kind of semitone. And I, I remember, I remember doing a, a song for the end of a movie that is it Jerry Goldsmith, the composer, had done, and the climax of the song was on these two chords. You know, I try to understand it. You know, G, but F sharp minor, but the words got in the way. Some crap like that. And I, used, I remember at the time I hated that chord scene, so I tried to change it. And I changed it from from G to G, F sharp minor to, to G to A sixth, and then down to F sharp minor. And I thought that was I thought it was really good <laughs> with Jerry Goldsmith coming in and liking the track. But when he got to that bit, he kind of jumped the yard in. Yeah, what? Oh no, no, no. Oh, I don't like that. You've got to put it back to G, F sharp minus 7th again. Did you or did you just tell Oh, me? I did. I had to. He was oh, paying me, so oh, I, I had to do it. <laughs> but that's kind of, you know, that's the, I suppose, the way I look at it. I look at it as, as a bit of a challenge, as a way of trying to find out how to do the same old crap in a slightly different way. Because really, when you're making hit records, a lot of the time, you are dealing with the same old chord sequences. Mm. Well, what you just said kind of gives me a little segue into a question about the difference between making records in America and making records here, do you find that your employers are somewhat less uh, enamored with excessiveness and, and want you to tame the, the uh, dragon that is Trevor Horn? No, 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 quite the opposite. Really? Okay. Well, when I first worked in LA, that was the, the thing that really appealed to me the most was uh, I was a little fish in a big pool. Over here, I was a big fish in a little pool. And everybody kept saying terrible things about me, how I would take months to do everything and how I'd get people fired out of bands. I was like some kind of an ogre. And uh, I went to America, and boy, there were about 10 people I could think of straight away who were much worse than me. And uh, people like Richard, what's his name, that guy, uh, Richard Perry. Oh, yeah. He's renowned. Uh, you know, so so w w when I wanted sort of three Sony 48 tracks, no one sort of, no one turned out here, really. Oh, no problem, man, you know. The first record I ever made in, in L.A. was Downtown Train, Rod Stewart, in the late 80s. And it was a revelation for me, actually, because uh, I had the funniest experience. I was working in, uh, it used to be called A&M Studios, and I was done this whole track for Rod Stewart. I'd, I'd met him very briefly, and and like I had a guide vocal from him, and I'd done this whole backing track, orchestra, everything. He hadn't heard any of it, you know, with oboe and all kinds of stuff. And so I was, and this was the first time I was ever working in America, and I had to finish the record in a week. I was terrified. I went to L.A., stayed with my, stayed at my friend's house, and I was due in. Uh, on Sunday at A&M Studios and uh, my friend a guy called Lowell Cream who was, used to be in 10cc said you've got to drive in LA you've got to rent a car so I rented a, a, a Volkswagen Rabbit even then I had a sort of laptop I, t I had my laptop and the, and the multi-track tape you know it was Sony 40, either Sony 48 or 24 one of the two on Sunday morning I drove down to A&M Studios you know the first time I'd ever driven on the road in America on the wrong side of the road and uh, as I pulled into the car park, there was a rather sort of tough-looking six-foot black guy who was kind of like security guard. And I said, uh, I'm on the Rod Stewart session. He said, down the, go down the road, the other parking lot. And I said, no, but I'm on the session. Can't I park over there? And he said, oh, buddy, you go down the road. And I said, no, I'll go and park over there. And I drove over and I parked. 
And I got out of the car and I saw, I saw him coming. Like I thought, oh, Jesus. So I scarfed into the reception of A&M and there was like 15 people there. And they went, oh, Trevor Horn, welcome to L.A. They're all applauding me. And as I came in, suddenly this guy came piling in. Hey, you, buddy, I told you not to park your car there. This is me. Move your effing car now. And, uh, of course, the, the, uh, the owner of the studio was mortified, and they kind of took him off to one side. And, uh, but I learned a very important lesson. I swapped the rabbit for a, a, a big Mercedes with tinted there glass. Go. There you go. And <laughs> I, never I never had that problem again. But I had a great time. I, the first time I was in LA, I had a great time because of, I, just, I made the horrendous discovery. Because Rod, Rod, Rod loved the backing track. He said, sounds like the Titanic going down, mate. It's so big. <laughs> He's, uh, but uh, but then, then, unfortunately... It, it turned out to be in the wrong key. It, it was a whole 41, 40 odd piece orchestra. The bloody thing was in G. And he'd said to me, you know, my voice goes up a bit when I go on tour. I said, well, it sounds a bit worn out. G sounds like a good key, and G's a great guitar key, you know? But anyway, I had to move it up to B flat. And this, you know, B flat, this is from, uh, this is in 1989 or whatever. It was very early days. Uh, and so I had to more or less re-record it from scratch, so I got to meet all the L.A. session guys. And boy, talk about, I love that, you know, expression, brown noses. Man, I've never, I've never been schmoozed like that in my life. Trevor, we love to play on your record. We love every record you've ever made, you know. Great, great, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I learned a lesson there as well, that, that American session guys are great, but you've still got to stop them doing doing rubbish things just because they're really amazing players you can't let them kind of noodle all over the record you've got to sit on them and focus them so I, I, I didn't find that at all I, I, in fact I've got a terrible habit of using American musicians all the time because I really like them I think you know we've got some good musicians over here but there's some brilliant players over there and they just seem to be a, a division up to me you know so I, I never had a problem, and, and, I, and I never had a problem with American record labels out there either. I just always like where I've worked all over America at various points in time. And I'm really happy out there. Yeah, I'm really happy working out there. Before the art of noise, the most excessive thing that you did was uh, probably slave to the rhythm. Now, when you were making that, it seemed that you guys were just having tons of fun trying stuff. Well, I mean, I was, I was very self-conscious because... Um, uh, with that record because Grace Jones had made some I thought she made some great records you know Pull Up to the Bumper and Warm Leatherette My Jamaican Guy um, La Vie en Rose I loved all of those records and they wanted me to make one single for a Greatest Hits album and you think well you know it, my track's going to have to go alongside all of those other ones so it better be good and and the initial version of Slave to the Rhythm was it wasn't very good. It was uh, I didn't think it was very good. It was a sort of Germanic do 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 Slave to the Rhythm. It was one of those kind of things. And I just didn't I don't know. I just didn't think it was right. Uh, but I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know I didn't know what to do. But I knew that I, I at the time, GoGo was happening big, you know. Uh, and there were a couple of EU, Experience Unlimited. And there was another, Somebody Washington. Uh, there was some really, GoGo was a kind of music that, uh, it was a sort of mid-tempo funk that came from Washington. But it was played in stadiums, and these sort of GoGo shows would last for 12 hours. And the music would never stop. Everyone would, you know, the, it was all on the drums. So I had some kind of fantasy that, I don't know, looking back on it, was pretty insane, really. I was, if I'm going to be a slave to any rhythm, it's only go-go rhythm that I'd prepared, be prepared to be a slave to. I mean, a pretty stupid thing, really. But uh, So Chris Blackwell got us a whole bunch of go-go musicians together, all the best ones, and we got them in a studio in New York. But then we made the sort of horrific discovery that the idea of arrangement isn't something that go-go players were used to. To them, arrangement was you start, and then when you finish, you stop. Whatever happens in between is, isn't really anything that's particularly organized. And so trying to show them uh, chords and say, you know, second verse and whatever, it was hopeless. But they were amazing players. Uh, the thing was, 
and I also realised that we would completely have to, you have to rewrite the tune, totally. But it was, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I'd ever have the nerve to do it now. We found one little bit that the drummer had played on his own while, while they were jamming, and, and we made a drum loop out of it, and then we found some fills, and we made a whole rhythm track out of the guy's drums with two Sonys offsetting them, you know, offsetting the Sonys, so that even though the drum track was looped, it was still, the drums were across ten tracks, you know, they were probably recorded drums. And Bruce rewrote the song over it completely, coming out those all those beautiful chords. But it was a shock to everyone. I mean, when Chris Blackwell first heard it, I think his jaw dropped because the original, the one that he, you know, that he thought I was doing was fast. It was like 135 BPM, and this other one was 95 BPM with a sort of, you know, swung triple beat to it. Mm. Wasn't really everybody's cup of tea, you know. But then, of course. Uh there were many, many different versions because you got other ideas. Yeah, well, I got carried away. I thought if I can do two different versions of it, maybe I can do five different versions. And I had this theory that why buy an album with a load of crap songs on it when you only really like one? Why not do five different versions of the one song you like? <laughs> Pretty stupid, really. There were 16 in all, weren't there? There was a lot of versions. We, yeah. just, we did it in minor keys. We did all kinds of things with it. But, you know, we also got a bit interested in Grace because she was a bit of an odd character. But I only, only spent two days with Grace in the whole of making that record, though, because she did have a tendency to just come in and kind of go. Mm. And whenever she came in, it was always late at night with a massive entourage, which I hated. And I used to try and freeze them out to try and beam hated them so that they'd all go. Uh -huh. So you'd get on with the record. But yeah, there were a few different versions. And I think on the album, we tried to tell Grace's life story. Yes, in a way, in, in sonic terms. In kind of sonic terms, yeah. yes. Little things going, fuck! <laughs> yeah. Um, let's talk about artists then, since you're talking about artists. Uh, your relationship with, with artists is sometimes very close, and sometimes, I have to say, I remember times when you hid under the desk to avoid them and told us to say you weren't there. So talk a little bit yes, about I artists in that. general. Artists are funny because you can never win with them, really. I had this conversation with Dr. Dre. He came into a session I was doing in L.A., and we got talking. His name's Andre, actually. He's a really nice guy. He's wearing a blue suit. He reminded me so much of uh, Duke Ellington. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, you know, uh, your relationship with an artist is always best when you start. However you start with an artist, that's how, that's the best period of your relationship. So, if, so you know, because it will only get worse after that. If you get success, real big success, then they'll sort of resent you a little bit and they'll, they'll want to make sure that all of the success is being towards them. And if you fail, they won't use you again. So it's not really, really, um, it's not a great future for it a lot of the time. <laughs> sometimes, you, sometimes you go through though, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really good, you know, I've made four albums with Seal. Exactly. And we've even been to the point of having a punch up, you know, a rather one-sided affair, being as he's six foot five. Yeah, tall. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we sort of went through all of that and now, you know, the thing was, the seal was so fabulous, you know, we got on so well for the first couple of albums, or at least for the first album. I, I never expect anything because, because it's a professional relationship. I'm not, you know, I'm not their friend. I'm there to make their record. And they, you know, they won't be getting buddy-buddy with me, you know. They want me to make the record. That's what they paid me for. So I'm, I'm, I, get, I try and get on and do that. And I sometimes say to people, it's a bit cruel, but maybe I say, you know, your, art, your, your relationship with an artist is like a film set. You only build the bits of it that you need. You don't build the other bits because you don't need them. You know, a film set, you know, it looks great from the front, but behind it's a bunch of, you know, it's made of paper mache propped up with a couple of poles. Uh, but sometimes you, sometimes, you know, you do end up, if you ever have the chance to meet somebody like Neil Tennant, you know, spending six months in a control room with Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe, that's, uh, that's really a luxury because they're such good fun to talk to, they're so bright, and they know how to treat old producers, you know, they don't, uh, young artists can get a bit bonkers, you know, is this the mix? 
No, it's not the mix. We just got the piano loud because we're overdubbing it. Oh, I thought it was the mix. I've had to deal with incredible uh, at times. It's always new artists who are insecure that can be the hardest. I remember working with one little R&B band, and uh, it got ridiculous because everything they say, what's that, what's that? They say, uh, that's the guitar that we put on. Don't like it, don't like it. Okay, we'll take it off. What's that, what's that? That noise there, that's the click. Don't like it. Take it off. Well, we've just got it there because, you know, that gap there, we've got to come back in time. But we'll take it off as soon as we've put the guitar on, you know. Oh, good. Take it off then, you know. <laughs> and uh, it can be a bit like that sometimes. So. so how often are you obligated to have the, uh, the artist in the studio? In other words, I remember well, a lot of times when... You weren't. Well, you wouldn't want you wouldn't want Grace Jones in the studio all the time. I mean, she'd go mad. You only you you only want them, you know, the the, the good ones, the ones who are experienced, who know about know how the process works, will show up for two or three hours, do their bit, you know. You entertain them. Everything is focused on them for those two or three hours, and then they go, and you go back to work. The ones that want to stick around and get involved, that's fine. If they, if, if, if they understand how the creative process works. And one of the problems with people who aren't very experienced in the creative process is like, if you work for a guy like Jerry Bruckheimer, I've, I've, done a, I've worked on a few films doing, the, you know, I did the score for Coyote Ugly uh, and all the sort of pre-records. You work with somebody like Jerry, you can play him eight pieces of music for a movie and he'll knock back every piece of music, right? You know, go, ah, no, I think you can do better. Then at the end of it, you'll go, great work, great work. And uh, you always go away feeling okay. But the worst, the worst thing to take is when somebody doesn't like something that you've done and then proceeds to try and, like, why did you do that? You know, it's crap, but why did you do it? I, I, don't, I don't understand. Well, I did it because, you know, we all do things, and sometimes they're wrong and sometimes they're right. We just move on. Sometimes people don't understand that. They'll try and tell you off for doing something that they didn't like. And it doesn't work like that, you know? When you're in the creative environment, it, it, every, it's all got to be... There's no good having people who are nervous about what they're saying or frightened to tell you something or bottling something up, you know? It's all got to come out. You've got, and I can, generally, I can generally get it out of people because I can read their faces. I can tell if they're pretending. You know, there's something like this you don't like. What is it that you don't like? What's wrong? I can tell that you're not happy, you know? What have we done? Is there something wrong? You know, and sometimes it can be something as simple as, you know, voice isn't loud enough or something. But, yeah, yeah I, it's, artists are wonderful. I love them to come, I love them to like what's there, and then I like them to go. Because it's boring making a record, it takes a long time, but I don't like them to go very far. I like them to be around. Because if you let them go too far away, then they can get too far away from the process and get a big shock when they hear the track again. And then they'll phone you up and say they hate it and whatever, and they'll want you to do everything different. And then they'll phone you two days later and say they've been listening to it to a few times, a few times, and now they like it. So can you put it back to the way it was, you know? I, I always try not to leap around too much. I try and kind of go carefully, slowly towards an end, you know? And if I feel the artist dragging me all over the place and wasting time, then, it, then that's when it can be stressful. Absolutely. And here's a funny question. If you had to sum up in a, in a kind of a short sentence the difference between a hit and a miss, could you sum it up, the elements? I mean, if we discount things like record companies putting hundreds of thousands of pounds into promotion, if we discount that. When you hear a record, are there elements that you can say, well, those are hit elements and those are... Oh, I, I, I think without a doubt. I mean, I, I was driving home from the studio the other the other Sunday afternoon, and I don't often listen to the charts, you know. And this is a few weeks back, and I thought, wow, oh, what the hell? I'll, I'll see what's in, you know, it's quarter, twenty to seven, you know, they, they're going to be playing the top fifty. I'll have a listen to see what's in the top five. So I put it on, and of course, the first first record's number three. Uh, uh, what's her name? Um, Beyonce. And it's that record, If I Were a Boy. This was the first time I'd heard it. And I thought, God, this is good, I like this. Great record, oh, I'm a number three. Well, I always feel good if I like a record that's in the top five, because I think, well, nothing's changed that much. I still like it, you know? Uh, and then I thought, 
I misheard the guy, and he said, and now, number two, yeah, the, the contestants and X Factor. And this record came on, and, and I thought, oh, this is unusual. This is not like saying, not a normal kind of record you would have X Factor artists doing. This is actually quite good. And as it went on, I started to think, this can't be uh, X Factor. Of course, what it was was Rihanna, Live Your Life, right? Which is a great record. <laughs> that was the first time I heard that. I thought, this is a great record. And then it dawned, this can't be. I must have misheard this. And then, of course, when it finished, I realised it wasn't. And then they played the number one record, which was the cast of X Factor doing, I want to be a hero, I need a hero, or something. Which... You know, the first 35 seconds was dripping with wonderful pregnant emotion. And then, of course, after about a minute, you realise it's dreadful record, horrible record. You know, just awful in every single way. Mediocre, you know, kind of seething with potential that never comes out. Everything's overdone and corny and cheap. And, uh, yeah, it's number one. So I, I think real hit records like that record that was number two and like Beyonce definitely have a sound to them. I think you can make a record that potentially can be a hit. Obviously the record label and how it's promoted and the artist plays a huge part in the success or failure of that record. But I think I can still, you know, when I, you know, when I first heard uh, Relax, I thought Relax was potentially a hit. I thought it really had something. I think you can tell a hit record, especially a sort of... The first time I heard that record by The Killers, Human. Are we human or are we dancing? What a great, I loved that from the first time I heard it. I thought it was a, like a big record, you know? Mm. So yeah, I think you can tell. And I think the difference is, is that one works and the other one doesn't, really. A hit record, I don't know, it gives you something. It communicates some kind of feeling to you. And, and quite often, you know, I mean, what the guy's talking about isn't really what he means, you know? If you look at a song like Angels, you know, it's probably be Robbie Williams talking about going with groupies in hotel rooms, but calling them angels in a really nice way. I'm loving angels instead, you know. And a lot of people like that because it, it felt maybe it sort of validated something that, I don't know, but it, it gave you something. You felt something from it. I don't know. I, I did, certainly. And I think that's what the difference between a really good record is you get... It is communication, after all, you know, and you, you pick up a kind of feeling, and it, it's a feeling that you want to keep getting. It's not like a movie where you can watch a film two or three times and then you get a bit bored with it. A record that you really like, you can listen to it loads, you know? That's mm. why, I, I mean, I like long records that I like. That's why I used to like Yes in the 70s, because you could put it on and it went on for a long time, you know?